The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I want to let you know that my new book titled How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race is coming out September 13th. And after years of working with professionals just like you all around the world, I found that conversations about race are particularly challenging because of too much fear and too little confidence. More specifically, people struggle with the fear of discomfort, the fear of damaging relationships, the fear of being misunderstood, canceled, or ostracized for what they have to say. So who did I write this book for? the person who is passionate about changing the world and their organizations for the better, the leader who leads a diverse team, and the professional who wants to learn how to overcome the hidden barriers that make it tough to connect with people with a different background. Whether you consider yourself an ally or you just want to avoid making mistakes when discussing race, this book is for you. And as a listener, you know this already, but I'm going to say it again. I believe the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. That's my motto and that's why my goal is to help as many people as possible by making these difficult conversations easier. And after six years and 600 episodes of Negotiate Anything, I am asking for your support in this endeavor to make this world a better place. At the American Negotiation Institute, our goal is to change the world and I am not afraid to say that. And this book plays a major role in that mission and we would love to have your support as we try to make this book a bestseller because if it hits that number, if it hits the bestseller list, that means more people will know about the message within that book. And if we hit the bestseller list, that means that we can get this message out to people all around the world, and we can't do it without you. So if any of this resonates with you and you want to join the mission, check out the link in the description of this episode to find out where you can buy your copy of How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the Negotiate Real Change podcast, where we highlight leaders who are creating positive change in their organizations. The more we talk to leaders in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, the more we started to recognize the patterns of successful change makers within organization. What we found is that when it comes to creating positive change, simply being a passionate professional who's armed with data, statistics, and research is rarely enough to create real change. So in this show, we'll share the secrets behind what it really takes for you to be a successful advocate, ally, and change maker in your organization. My name is Kwame Christian, and I am the founder and CEO of the American Negotiation Institute, where we conduct negotiation and conflict resolution trainings that help to make your difficult conversations easier. We also conduct trainings in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion because we realize that there's a difference between passion and persuasion. And if you want to create real change, you have to be able to negotiate and resolve the conflict that comes with change. And if if you're interested in learning more about what we do, make sure to check out the American Negotiation Institute.com or check the link in the description of this episode. And now, without further ado, let's get into the interview. Flo, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be here with you today, Kwame. Yes, well, we appreciate it. And um, we are looking forward to hearing a little bit of your wisdom today. Um, but before we do, can you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? 
Yeah, so I like to start with just a series of I am statements. So I am a mother, I am a daughter, I am an aunt, I am a DEI professional, I am rock, I am country, I am a lover of all things open dialogue, and I am a Pearson employee. I am an HR professional with over two decades of experience in quite a number of areas across HR, including DEI, of course, but also learning and development, organizational development and strategy, and also talent acquisition. And so in my career, as you can imagine, I've seen quite a number of things that work well in organizations and things that just aren't well serving. And so fortunately, we're in the space where we can move much more away from those things that aren't well serving or incongruent to where we know we want to be globally, where we want to be nationally, where we want to be even collectively and individually, but move to a space where we're much more free to discuss things that keep us from being great so that we can appreciate, celebrate, and recognize diversity. And that's what I'm absolutely uh, in favor of. And in terms of organizations and how we think, but also just that individual lived experience, because at the end of the day, we're all human. And we want to make sure that hopefully the time on earth we have as pleasant a human experience as possible, both as a giver and a receiver. That is fantastic. And I have now taken a lot of notes on how to give an introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. Awesome. (laughs) So, um, so in this um, interview, we're going to talk a bit about how to have difficult conversations in the space of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, I think we should start off by addressing the skeptics uh, first, because we can't just start off with the obvious and by saying, oh, it's obvious. We should have these conversations because there are a lot of people who don't think that we should. And so let's start with the why. Why should we even have these conversations about race and other sensitive topics in the workplace? Well, because the why states then who we are as an individual. And as we engage in any type of conversation, we show who we are, what our behavioral patterns look like, what our morals are, what our values are, that social conditioning piece also that's so instrumental in how we're influenced and then as children and then become influencers as adults. So when we think about topics of race, when we think about topics that really have been taboo in the workplace and taboo really in a greater society, it's important that we start with the benefits of how it is we discuss and unearth some of those behaviors that have been learned and expose ourselves to something that's different so that we can sort of retrain our brains and unlearn situations or unlearn perhaps narrative, narratives that have been embedded that just aren't true or well-serving. And so when we think about how that then shows up as a way to become beneficial, then we think less about how it is that we're trying to get someone to change their perspective, but more to create some awareness so that through that awareness, you can have greater knowledge. And when you have greater knowledge, when you know better, you do better and do better then becomes the responsibility than each of us have as we learn throughout this inclusive journey to then pass that learning on and share with others so that we sort of get into this pattern where we're erasing those stereotypes or we're erasing and replacing those scripts with reality. We see that in in education today. We see that in medicine today. We see that in law practices and how laws appropriated across not just the United States, but globally. And if we're involved in ensuring that we have what's uh, equitable, what is accurate, what is really in context of how it is we each experience race and racism because it exists everywhere, then we really then do have that collective approach to ensuring that we're 
planting new seeds. And on that new fertile ground, we have much more of an awareness and appreciation and much better fact finding that allows us to be better individuals and show up a whole lot differently. I agree. I agree. And, you know, what's interesting about the way that you responded was that it didn't seem as though you were creating any, creating any, um, dichotomies where we're saying, okay, it's us versus them, or this is uh, polarizing in any way. Um, when I was doing some of these trainings on how to have difficult conversations about race, we, we like to survey folks before we do it. And um, one of the things that kept on coming up was that they don't want anything political. They don't want anything divisive, those type of things. And it's interesting that there is a almost like a, a concern about anything in DEI being political or divisive. Okay. And uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I absolutely believe that it can be. But I also believe that divisive could be this thing that we see in social media that says, let's just settle this once and for all. You put sugar in your grits or no, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, also polarizing can be, you know, do you add honey mustard to your potato salad or no, right? Do you try to do the hustle at the country line dance or no? So all of that can be polarizing. So of course, when we think, think about it along that context, anything in life can be politicized. It can be controversial. It can be very adversarial. And when I think about the work of inclusion at its heart, at, at its heart is understanding what diversity is, but really thinking about behaviorally how we show up. Are we inviting? We all know what it feels like to be excluded. And typically when I have this conversation with small groups, large groups, and we think about what inclusion means to us, what culture means to us, and I ask the question, when's the time when you've been excluded? Most people dig all the way back in that cognitive memory bank to something that happened in first grade, something that happened in third grade, the middle school, you know, cheerleading group that, you know, sort of outcast people, you know, not being picked for the football team, not being selected to sing a lead solo. Those experiences are traumatic, but very instrumental in how it is then we start to think future focused and what behaviors that we demonstrate. So when I think about the work of DEI, it can be all of those things. It can be very political. It can be very combative if we allow it. But what I like to think is that it's about having a conversation so that we do recognize, acknowledge, celebrate differences. And in doing so, we're learning something about individuals. We're learning something about identities, populations of people. We're putting ourselves in a position where if we're learning more, then we learn more, we're able to apply that learning to a greater context and bring people along a journey based on, hey, this is my lived experience. And I just want you to know what this could mean. Should we continue down a path if we're not careful about whatever the topic is? And it can be the topic of race. It can be the topic of ethnicity. It can be the topic of sexual orientation, gender identity, what other types of experiences we have as Adult, adult professionals, or even as children. And so we have a great responsibility and opportunity to almost reverse engineer experiences. So not only we help ourselves, but along the way, we're sharing those experiences with others in a way that helps open that awareness and opens the dialogue so that we don't become combative. And the one last you know, note I'll put on the, the question, because I think it's so perfect. We think about how this shows up generationally. And I just had this conversation earlier with someone and specifically in the context of how each new generation has these labels. 
And with these labels, it almost becomes a self-fulfilled prophecy, right? And so you look at the silent generation. We know that the silent generation, those born in the early 1900s to 1920s were given that label because then children were to be seen and not heard. That passed down to the next generation. But then the boomers became this sort of rebel generation. We're around wars and we're not going to, you know, go, you know, uh, along the lines of, what the government said we should do, or we're, you know, going to protest when we think that we need to protest. And, you know, we're going to believe in free love and all of these things. So they got this sort of rebellious label, my generation, probably the best generation, <laughs> generation X, <laughs> right? We still had a label though. So although we were influenced by all of these other generations, our label was, well, you're just lost because, you know, you came in at a time where all of these things were happening. You're on the convergence of newer technologies, et cetera, and so on and so forth. We know millennials, you know, they're just that next generation, very high tech thinkers, et cetera. And now we have Gen Z. Well, if we're not careful, instead of appreciating all of these great rich experiences that each of the generations get, because I learned some great things from my grandparents who were silent generation, they understood the value of saving money and making sure that you're planning ahead and making sure that you're just not blowing it all. I got really good work ethic from my parents, the boomers who believed in that, you know, stay with a company forever. I don't know that people do that so much anymore, but the, the, the fact here is, and it's a very long response. I get that. The fact is if we're not careful to take the best parts of each thing that we experience on this lens of diverse dimensions and on the lens of how we can be much more inclusive, then we will create more enemies than than bring people along the journey. And one thing my mom would always tell me when I was a kid, she said, Flo, you can attract more flies with honey than vinegar. And so if we're going to have this sweet experience along this inclusive way, then we have to understand that there are many paths that people can take to inclusion. We have to agree on that destination, but let's find out the best way that we can conversationally have a greater awareness, a greater degree of empathy and sensitivity to ensure that we're bringing people along rather than creating enemies. And I think that if we can do that, certainly we remove that element of politicizing your experience your emotions, systemic things that have happened, systematic approaches, and replace them with something new. Does your company invest in professional development training? If you believe that your team would benefit from a negotiation workshop, all you need to do is go to our website, fill out the workshop request form, and then we'll set up a time to chat. These workshops are completely customizable and we've done them all around the country. Negotiation and conflict resolution skills are beneficial across all professions, but they're especially useful in procurement, purchasing, sales, sourcing, and contract management. Our calendar is filling up quickly, and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year. If you think you might want one, I'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more, and we will be right back after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it seems, I mean, I guess I, I'm obligated by the brand to talk about collaborative negotiation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because when it comes to this, these these conversations about DEI and specifically thinking about it in terms of inclusion, I include you. You, I want you to be here in, and feel free to 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 be your authentic self. Mm-hmm. And I want to be able to do the same. Let's talk about it. Let's learn from each other. And yeah. uh, two things that came up a lot that you mentioned learning and awareness. And it's, it sounds easy, right? We need to get learned we, people need to learn and they need to raise their awareness, but there are some blocks that are in the way that makes it difficult for people to learn and increase their awareness. And from your perspective, what are those things? Gosh, wow. You know, I'll say first and foremost, it starts with the individual, right? Because if I'm going to learn something, I first have to acknowledge that there's something for me to learn. (laughs) (laughs) So if if I'm going to get to, you know, to learning, I do have to become aware. I think that's one of the first steps, right? Because you create awareness and then you learn something. At least that's what we think about in the context of adult learning theory. So what are some things that I have to be much more aware of in terms of race, racial interactions that I may not have been so privy to. The best example I can give there is when we've had conversations and I've worked with a number of organizations, but we have these, you know, candid conversations or courageous conversations or these dialogues that allow people to just hear from others and their experience. Well, there's a percentage of people, and I'll just make this, you know, focus on the United States. There's a population of people who don't understand the pain, the trauma that happens when you see alarms, the, 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 the flashers pull up behind you at sundown. <laughs> there are people, you know, who may never experience the racing pulse, the immediate perspiration, the what's going to happen? Am I pulling over in the right space? But when we open that dialogue and really here, I'm talking about that context between what black and brown people experience versus what white individuals might experience. They don't experience, you know, some of the uh, anticipation or trauma as to, am I going to get out of the situation alive? So I think when we, when we talk about awareness, that's just one example of how situations can become so differently or the awareness around or situations unfold differently. The awareness around what it means when you go to a store and someone's following you around, right? A lot of people are like, what are you talking about? Nobody's following you. You're like, absolutely, I'm being followed. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that when we, when we talk about race relations, it's those everyday lived experiences that we have when you know we have a conversation then with a wider group of identities and you say, this is something that I live with. Or when my sons, I have two adult black male children. <laughs> They're my men children. Even though they're adult and they're on their own, I still, if I don't get that phone call from them at certain points throughout the day, I'm like, what is going on, right? Others may not have that same lived experience. So when we create awareness around those differences, the chasm that exists between lived experiences within the BIPOC community compared to others, then we have to then take from that 
what can I do to be much more sensitive? And now that I have this knowledge, how can I help raise the level of information that I'm sharing so that not only can I be a great ally, but I can stand in the system in, in the way of systemic issues that happened or systematic oppressions that really then cultivate and sort of repeat itself. And so it becomes less of, I know something and I haven't done something with the information and more of now that I'm aware, what do I do about it? And so I think that when we have those types of conversations, then we can see a change in what then people do with knowledge and then how it is we're able to move beyond where we are today so that you see things like bills that are passed or you see things like people taking more action or people really just very simply being much more vulnerable and empathic in those everyday conversations that we have with people that we come in contact or with whom we come in contact. Yeah, you're you're spot on. And now when it comes to these conversations too, like actually want, let's say one-on-one interaction on the topic of race. One of the things that comes up pretty frequently is the reality of emotions. There are just an endless amount of emotions that we can feel. And it becomes more complex when you realize that emotions, usually oftentimes it could be more than one emotion at one time. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. And so, and the, the, the reality that both people are feeling emotional at the same time, probably for different reasons. Uh-huh. And so how do you navigate that while still having a high level conversation? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, both parties, you mentioned everything we do, we're in this negotiation cycle. So both parties have to acknowledge and negotiate to what degree are we going to engage these topics when we're in, you know, having this one-on-one dialogue. And so that comes down to how do we have some really keen communication agreements to this is the context of where we are today. Here's what I'm willing to share. What are you willing to share? Mm. Right. Because we all have a story. And so I think that when we're engaged in these one-on-one conversations, we first have to acknowledge that to your point, there is this range of emotions and anyone who's been familiar with the Kubler-Ross model And if you haven't, go check it out because it's a fantastic thing. But the Kubler-Bross model speaks to what happens at the point of when we experience change or grief. It was really based on a grief study. What happens to the brain when there's a change that occurs? So we know that going into conversations that is going to force me to think a little bit differently and the other person that I'm engaged with to think a little bit differently. How do we start to have these negotiations around that first process that happens when we hear information? And that is shock. So it is shocking when we have these topics or these conversations on any dimension of diversity, especially if we're not familiar with it. So Mm -hmm. it's shock for the individual hearing the information is shock for the person who lives that experience every day and has the trauma to have to explain on a frequent basis. This is what it means to walk around in my skin. And so then you move from that and then determine if we're going to get to acceptance of your lived experience and my lived experience, and then everything in between, then what needs to happen next? And so I think that it's a matter of being vulnerable to say, hey, this conversation really isn't about me trying to change your mind. It is about me trying to express to you what I feel, how I show up, and then what's your response to it using the same degree of vulnerability and empathy. And I think the other piece that's so important is that piece where we don't hold people accountable for already understanding our lived experience, because that happens sometimes. There are a lot of people who will, in any relationship, 
brand new relationship at work, brand new loving relationship, brand new. I met somebody on Tinder. I'm going to meet them. and We're going to have a conversation, whatever that relationship dynamic is. It's almost like we expect that they live in our brain and can sort of pre-process what they're going to say so that we respond in a certain way. I think we have to eliminate that and let that go. And in the moment, in the context of that discussion, determine, you know, here's what I'm going to need from you in this discussion. Here's what I'd love to be able to give to you. Is that okay? And then have the dialogue and then identify now that we've shared this information, what needs to happen next? And that's something I do quite often. When I'm meeting new people, I like to ask people, you know, how that shows up in the context of, well, how do you define culture? Let me share with you how I define it. And listen, there's no right or wrong answer. But when you think about that lived experience, how people have evolved, you know, into maturity, how people evolve their thinking, it's just nice to hear how they make certain definitions because from there I have a base point. And then I can say, well, what if we could imagine a different type of culture? on top of what you just mentioned, and then always negotiating then what that could look like, how could it show up? And then the ultimate piece then is that action planning. Now that we know something different about each other, how we assess things, what we can imagine the possibilities are, what do we do? And so that piece around having that actioning towards what's different and what are you going to do to take back? What am I going to do to take back? When we're talking about race relations, one of the things that I do when I engage people is who's sitting around your dinner table? or you're planning a big event, who's coming to that party? Because at work, I like to say we have a captive audience. We can talk about all of these topics at work and people are interested widely. But when you go home, are you still practicing those same things? Mm. So that as you ask the question around what is it that we do to make sure that we're along the same path or giving, really, I interpret freedom to discuss these topics, then what we're doing is creating some actionables around outside of a work environment, outside of when you have these captive audiences. How do you have the conversation with that family member then who might, you know, think much differently? What do you say to them and start to practice there? And then we come back and have more conversations so that we build not just in the moment dialogue, but forward dialogue on how it is we can continue a relationship and build in that way. Oh, that's great. And I know we're coming up on time here. And so I want to end with two questions that are similar. So just some quick pieces of advice that we can give to the audience as they're having these difficult conversations about race or other sensitive topics in the workplace. So the first one is, what would you say is the biggest mistake that people can make in these conversations? Assumptions. Assumptions and preconceived notions. I think this really, uh, Kwame, goes back to the social conditioning. So believing what we believe because it's just what we've always believed, that's very dangerous. I think that, you know, if we make assumptions, then it really keeps, it becomes that barrier, right? It becomes the ability for us to keep that narrative on a tale of two cities, a tale of three cities, a tale of what I just want to believe because it's so hard to change. It's so hard for me to move from that shock to acceptance that I mentioned in that Kubler-Ross model. And so really people have to give themselves permission and freedom to set aside some beliefs so that they can be receptive of information because failure to do so really doesn't change anything. Exactly. And I think one of the other things, too, is failing to recognize when it is an assumption or, or a preconceived notion, because <laughs> that's right. the, it's, <laughs> the, uh, the human brain is fascinating because yes. um, there's a difference between facts and feelings. But in the moment, they feel the same way. Right. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, you know, one of my mentors told me a long time ago that there's a statement that people would like to toss around. Even today, I hear it. And it is, you know, perception is reality. And there's just a slight adjustment that needs to be made there. Your perception is your reality. Doesn't mean it's reality. 
but whatever you yeah. perceive to be is your own reality. And so how do we, how do we navigate that so that there is a lot more informed approach to moving aside those, you know, individual perceptions that could be your, to your point, emotions based, feelings based, assumptions based, and, and move towards a, a different way. That's fantastic. And now the last one is what is one thing that people can do to level up their ability to have these conversations? Gosh, you know, in the, in the, the words of famed uh, author and, and vocalist Sierra, you know, she talks about leveling up. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and in that song, she just talks about how people connect in a way that, you know, really you have this mutual exchange. And so I think that a mutual exchange is key in leveling up, right? And it is, how do you go beyond your comfort zone and sit in that bit of discomfort so that you're open to hear about something new? And even if it's something that people ordinarily would say, well, hey, Flo, you should have known that. Know that it's okay. Even if I should have known something, I'm going to level up because now I'm being much more open and intentional and really premeditated about learning something different, not only for my own benefit, but again, back to who's around that table, who's coming to that event that I can then share with others and then help encourage them even to level up and and gain that mutual understanding and that mutual respect and release the vulnerability so that that, you know, makes way for that type of evolution. And so that's what I would say. (laughs) That's fantastic. And uh, my wife will be very validated knowing that you you cited that song. She loves that song. So I think that's that's a great way to end. Uh, Flo, we really appreciate you coming in and uh, sharing this with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I hope to, you know, have more conversations. We certainly appreciate you being a friend of Pearson. And now I can call you my friend too. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.